Welcome to the Unite Church podcast. For more information about Unite Church, visit unitechurchak.org. Now enjoy this message. I've been praying for a move of God for the revival of the United States of America for 25 years. And that's the reason we're doing this altar series right now, because the collective experience of the people in this room, no matter what you've experienced of God, we have only just begun to touch the hem of the robe of an infinite God. There's more of him to be had, and I want more of Jesus. Anybody else want more of Jesus? Like five of you want more of Jesus. I don't know about you, but, but that, what we were just doing, to me, that's a good way to start church. Uh, everything else is just icing from now on. Um, how many of you have been enjoying this altar series? Has the Lord spoken to anybody? Yeah? Has, has the Lord changed anything in anybody's mind or heart? Anybody? Just pop your hand up real quick. All right, awesome. So a couple weeks ago, you may remember, uh, we did a message on the altar of dedication. Do you remember that? And that dedication always leads to habitation. And we looked at the evidences in the Bible when they dedicated uh, the tabernacle, the fire of God showed up. The presence of the Lord showed up. When they dedicated uh, the temple, the cloud was so thick, the priests couldn't even minister in there. When, when the, at Pentecost, the new believers dedicated themselves to pursuing, to following, to obeying Jesus Christ, tongues of fire on everyone's head. They spoke in languages they'd never learned, and a bunch of Galileans preached the gospel in the languages of people all over the world because they had evidence. This is what I want to talk to you about today. When there is dedication, there is habitation. And whenever there is habitation, there is evidence of habitation. And we want to talk about not just being altars of dedication, but altars of evidence. When someone or something inhabits a house, there's proof that it's being inhabited. Did you know just recently we had a mouse infestation here? (laughs) Do you know how we knew that we had a mouse infestation in the church? Evidence! Evidence. (laughs) Them little suckers left evidence everywhere! They pooped on everything. And so Rick set out. He's a, he's a mighty mouse hunter. He must have killed 50 mice. There's no longer evidence of a mouse infestation because we took care of that, of that evidence. We took care of the habitation of mice. I was just thinking about this, and I was thinking about Jennifer and I when we first got married. You know, we got an apartment before we were married, and I was living in it. She was still living at her parents' house. And before Jennifer moved in, there was no evidence that there was a woman in that place. (laughs) Like, I had a corduroy chair, and I had a lamp, and I had a bookshelf, and I had a mattress on the ground in the bedroom, and that was, that was the bachelor pad. But, but slowly, as the wedding uh, got closer and closer, a couch would appear, and a table and chairs would appear, a painting would appear, you know, a, a, a bed frame appeared. And eventually, you could tell if you walked into the house that there was not just a bachelor living there anymore, there was evidence. You could walk into the closet and see, oh, unless this guy dresses like a woman, there is evidence that there is a woman. But, but to me, the biggest evidence that there's a woman in the house is when you walk into the bedroom, there's a bed skirt on the bed. I'll tell you what, a bachelor doesn't even know to make the bed, much less to dress the bed. 
So if you walk in the room and the bed is wearing a skirt, that's a woman's idea. <laughs> that's how you know there's a woman living in the house. Because anytime there's habitation, there's evidence. God is the same way. Why was there fire when the tabernacle of Moses was dedicated? Evidence. Why was there a cloud so thick the priests couldn't minister when Solomon's temple was dedicated? Evidence. Why tongues at Pentecost? Evidence. Evidence that there is a God who's powerful and he shows up. I don't want to just be a believer. I want to be an altar of evidence. So when the world looks at my life, they see that guy's got a God inhabiting his life. There's proof and I can see it. That's what we're going to talk about today. You ready? Let's pray first. If you're willing to receive what God has to say today, let's just turn our hands up towards the Lord. You can stretch them out high if you want to, but this is an attitude of submission. Holy Spirit, teach us. You've been teaching us, and we've been listening, but I pray once again you give us ears to hear. You give us hearts that desire more of you, to know you, to submit ourselves to you. We ask, Lord, that you would change our minds if you want to. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us what we don't know. We ask that you would transform us because we don't want to be the same leaving as we, as we were when we came in. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help me. I don't want to say anything that causes harm to your people. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and give me eloquence of speech and clarity of thought. And only what is of your heart, your mind, and your spirit would come out of my mouth. In the name of Jesus, amen? All right, the title of this message is The Altar of Evidence. God shows up for a showdown. You know what a showdown is? Almost every culture on earth has, has showdowns. Have you ever seen a movie where two samurai are standing across from one another with their swords drawn? They're about to have a showdown. Have you ever seen a movie where two knights are at the ends of the list and they're about to joust? They're about to have a medieval showdown. This concept of two forces clashing to prove which one is most powerful is one of the most ancient concepts in the world, and it spans almost every culture. I want to show you a couple of pictures. Oh, look at this. <laughs> Doc Holliday. That's right, I'm your Huckleberry. Doc Holliday, Johnny Ringo, who's the fastest? Next. Oh, look at that. Who's it going to be, Jack Sparrow or Legolas? What's the next one? Come on. I will break you. Rocky, Balboa, or Drago. I want you to notice something. In every one of these, there's something beside just speed that's being tested. What is true? There's a belief system that's being tested. Who is good? Who is evil? The deceiver or the man of honor? There's a belief system that's being tested. This one, capitalism versus communism. This is a belief system being pitted against a belief system. A duel is two belief systems coming into clash with one another to decide which one has the approval of heaven. That's what this is about. Look at the next one. Oh, man. Good versus evil. Next one. This is a belief system. This is a clash between two belief systems. The belief system of liberty and freedom and the belief system of safety at any cost. That's what's happening in these movies. What's next? 
This is the fight over the Ark of the Covenant itself. <laughs> the very presence of God is at stake here. What's next? Oh, that's a low blow. <laughs> that's just what happens when you make God mad. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 as I was coming in, I was praying this morning. I was like, oh, I wish I had Godzilla versus King Kong. That would have been perfect. Throughout every culture, we see these conflicts, and we see them in the Bible, too. The, the conflict between Moses and Pharaoh was not a conflict between two leaders. It was a conflict between two gods, the God of Israel and the false gods of Egypt. The conflict between David and Goliath was not a conflict between a teenage boy and a giant. It was a conflict between the God of Israel and the false God of the Philistines. It's all through the Bible. And today we're going to talk about one of the greatest showdowns in history and one of the greatest showdowns in the Bible, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah shows up to call out a false god, Baal. Calls him out on the street, high noon, and guns him down. That's exactly what happens. So uh, let me give you a little bit of background. We're talking about 875 B.C. If you've read the Bible, you know that at one time, Israel was one nation, and then they split. There was a rebellion, and Israel turned into two countries, which were Israel and Judah. At this time, Elijah is the prophet in Israel. Elijah's name is a prophecy itself. Elijah means Yahweh is God. And his entire mission on earth is to turn the heart of his nation back towards the true God because they've fallen astray. And at this time that we're talking about, Ahab is the king. Have you ever heard of Ahab? The Bible says that he is one of the most evil kings in history. And he married one of the most evil women in history, a Phoenician Sidonian princess named Jezebel. You ever heard of Jezebel? She's a manipulator. She's a murderer. Together, they are like the nastiest couple who ever lived and who ever reigned. They're foul. And Ahab and Jezebel both worshipped different versions of Baal, and when they got together, their marriage made like a super Baal, and they built a temple to Baal. Baal is the name of the false god of the Canaanites, okay? Now, this is way after the temple has been dedicated, way after the tabernacle has been dedicated, way after David, the man of God, brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. People have already known that God is real and he exists, but the entire nation has fallen away to false gods. So God sets up a showdown between these evil gods and between the true God. Now, what I want to do is I want to tell you who these Baals are because you're going to understand this story better once you understand who Elijah's fighting against, okay? If you're going to confront a God, you want to confront him on his home ground, and you want to confront his strength and prove that he's weaker than you are, right? Doc Holliday was proven he's faster than Johnny Ringo. God is about to prove that he's stronger than these gods. So Baal, are you ready? Baal is the god of the Canaanites. Baal is a rain god. He's a weather god. He's a storm god. And he goes by the title king of the gods. Now, I want to show you this. This is 1 Kings 17, 1 through 7. It says, now Elijah 
who is from Tishba and Gilead, told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Why did God do that? Because Baal was a rain god. So when Elijah shows up to challenge Baal, he goes, oh, you're a rain god, huh? Prove it. My God says there's not going to be rain for three years. What do your gods say? And for three years, the prophets of Baal were doing rain dances trying to make it rain. And guess what happened? Nothing. Because God was confronting the rain God, right? Now, Jezebel, she was Sidonian. And in the Sidonian culture, Baal is a little bit different. This happened all over the world. All over the world, there were different versions of Adonis. There were different versions of Diana. Their gods just had little variations. And in Sidonian, in Sidonia, the Baal of Sidonia was named Marcot, and he was a fire god. His nickname was the fire of heaven. So if you're going to confront a fire god, what are you going to do? Dude, if you're going to confront a fire god, you're going to prove he doesn't have any fire. You're going to prove your fire god is impotent because my god is the god of fire. Guys, this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Every time, every time I look at this, it makes me excited because God proved to the false rain god that he's the rain god. God proved to the false fire god that he's the fire god. God proved to the false king of gods that he's the king of gods, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he did it so the entire nation could see. The Lord is waiting for somebody, anybody, even one person to stand up and say, I challenge your gods to evidence. Show me. Show me. Elijah did it. I want you to understand something. Elijah is not putting God to the test. Elijah is putting Baal to the test. And Baal fails. Now, before I go on with the rest of the story, I just want to show you something, because sometimes we talk about stuff like this, and we think about, you know, it's just ancient mythology. America's not dealing with this kind of thing. We don't have any gods in our culture. We don't have, we're not worshiping demons in our culture, right? I mean, that's silly. That's ridiculous. I just want to show you a picture real quick. Do you have this other picture? Have you guys been reading the news? This, uh, <laughs> this sculpture is named now, and it was just put up on top of the New York State Supreme Court building this month, and the artist who made it sculpted it in, in honor of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she says that she built it to represent the spirit, the spirit of the struggle for abortion rights. Show the other picture. That is the spirit of the struggle for abortion rights. And it is on the Supreme Court building for the state of New York. What in the hell is wrong with us? I hope I didn't just offend you more than that does. Do I even need to tell you what that looks like? 
You think we're not battling false gods. Um, Christians, wake up. This isn't, this isn't an issue that needs to be embraced. Our country is not being taken down by issues that need to be embraced. This is the same problem that they had in Israel, that when a culture and its leadership embraces sin and idolatry, that culture will destroy itself. And I'm telling you right now, we need to repent this stuff. Because when it unmasks itself, you can't just say this is a good anymore. You have to look it in the eyes. And you have to decide whether when it takes its mask off, are you still okay with it? It took its mask off, guys. It's time for a showdown. I want to read this. 1 Kings 18, 17 through 24. It hasn't rained for three years, remember. By the way, Baal, if the rain doesn't come and if your harvests fail, the way you appease Baal is by sacrificing your children. The God that Elijah is confronting is a God that demands that for your comfort, for your success in life, for your betterment, you sacrifice your children. I'm just saying, anytime, anytime you're faced with a God that wants you to sacrifice your children, you're looking at hell. If that offends you, it offends you. We're going to have to deal with it, okay? Just deal with it. It's not the way of Jesus Christ. I love you. But it's not the way of Jesus Christ. 1 Kings 18, 17 through 24. When Ahab saw him, listen, guys, this is the reason that we have to call it what it is. Because we want Jesus Christ in this house. If you just want to go somewhere where you're going to hear nice sermons and you're going to sing a couple of songs and you can eat your donuts and drink your coffee, you may not be comfortable here. We love you anyway. We love you. But this house is going after Jesus Christ. And that means we're going to submit to the heart of Jesus Christ. And what I'm hoping is instead of asking Jesus to submit to what I think is right, then we can submit to what he thinks is right because that's the way of the kingdom. He can't be enthroned on my pride. Oh, geez, sorry, guys. 1 Kings 18, 17 through 24, when Ahab saw him, this is Ahab finally sees Elijah because Elijah's been off at a creek. There's, there's, there's been a famine. Elijah's been drinking water out of a creek, and there's been uh, ravens bringing him breakfast every day. God's been doing miracles for Elijah. He goes down to the widow of Zarephath. She can't run out of oil. She can't run out of flour because Elijah's hanging out with her. Her son dies. Elijah raised him from the dead. Elijah's just out there doing the work of God, you know. Finally, he bumps into Ahab. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, Is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? (laughs) Verse 18, I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the command of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me on Mount Carmel, along with, okay, do the math here, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. Now, Asherah is a love goddess. She's kind of like Venus. And Ahab and Jezebel set up uh, what was called, uh, i got to write this down somewhere. They set up a, uh, it's called a grove because there were so many. They had Asherah poles, which they worshipped Asherah with, and they set up a grove. It's like there are so many idols, it's like trees. They set up a grove of idols. And so when, uh, when Elijah's confronting 
Baal, he's also confronting Asherah because Asherah is the bride of Baal. She's supposedly the wife of God. If you run into any language that talks about a bride of God, we're talking about Asherah, okay? So 850 false prophets. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord's God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people were completely silent. Like when you're in a showdown between God and Baal, why would you be still? Why would you be silent? I was, I was wondering about this. I was praying about this, and I thought, you know what? Maybe some of them don't want to give up their worship of Baal. Maybe, maybe they like some of the things about worshiping Asherah. She's a sex goddess. You get to have sexual uh, practices and sexual rights when you, worship, when you worship her. Maybe some of them like some of that. Or maybe there was such a culture of intimidation because of how evil Ahab and Jezebel were. Maybe there was such a culture of intimidation because there were 850 false prophets there and one man of God that maybe they were too scared to open their mouths even if they did want to follow God. Are we in a culture that's too scared to open its mouth even if we do want to follow God? I want to challenge you. You and I have got to be impossible to intimidate. Because being impossible to intimidate is evidence that I've got a God. We cower. Have, have, you, have you ever been faced with woke culture and thought, I wish I could say something, but I'm just afraid of how people are going to respond? That's what's going on here. They're silent because they're afraid of what's going to happen if they open their mouths. I'm going to skip down just a little bit. Verse 22, Elijah said to them, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who's left. Actually, there were a hundred more hidden in caves, but he's the only one standing there. I'm the only prophet of the Lord who's left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish, cut it into pieces, lay it on the wood of the altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God. I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Can you imagine being Elijah? The dude is standing there by himself. He's surrounded by demonic prophets. He's all by himself. And he's like, all right, you call on your God. I'm going to be over here by myself calling on my God. And whichever one answers with fire out of the sky is the true God. You got to have guts to put fire to your faith. You got to have guts to call on fire. What are you talking about calling on fire? That's only happened two times in history and Elijah wasn't around for either one of them. I'm going to skip down a little bit more. Verse 27. So, um, the prophets of Baal set up their altar, and, and they put the calf on it, and they cut it up, and they started yelling and hollering and dancing around, doing their whatever kind of dance, and trying to make Baal move. They did it all the way from sunup to noontime. Verse 27, it says, about noontime, Elijah began mocking them. He's just making fun of them, because it's just stupid at this point. 
He goes, you'll have to shout louder. He scoffed. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming. Or he's relieving himself. Maybe your god is taking a poopy. It's been a long time, but he's a god. Who knows? Can you imagine this? Or maybe he's away on a trip or asleep and needs to be awakened. So he's totally making fun of them. And look how they respond. Instead of going, stop it, you're making fun of us. Instead of doing that, so they shouted louder. They're like, oh, he might have a point. I've heard of that happening before. Maybe he is on a trip. Maybe he's not here right now. You know, because they, their God's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not ubiquitous. He's not all places at all times. Maybe he is taking a poopy. I don't know. It could be anything. So they shouted louder, Bill! They followed their normal customs, cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. Then they raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice. Still, there was no sound, no reply, no response. You know why? Because he's no God. These guys have a problem right now. They put everything on the, on the line for their rain god, and their rain god ain't doing squat. They put everything on the line for their fire god, and their fire god ain't doing squat. Think about this for a second. For years, they have been demanding that people sacrifice their children to these gods. Bring their crops in honor to these gods. Bend their knee to these gods. Close your mouth and do what we tell you because of these gods. And here they are standing there calling on a God who's not showing up. I wonder what's going on in the hearts and the minds of the people because they've been taken advantage of. They've been taken advantage of by this false belief system. They've lost their own loved ones, their firstborn. They sacrificed their firstborn to a lie. And what they're witnessing right now is the powerlessness of that belief system. Think what's happening inside of them when this is going on. Verse 35, at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, it, can you imagine? Elijah just waits all day. He waits all day till the evening sacrifice. You know why? Because there's two times for sacrifice. There's morning sacrifice and evening sacrifice. So he just waited till the customary time. He just waited till it's time when God asked for the sacrifice. It says, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed. Doesn't cut himself. He doesn't jump around. He's not, he's not going crazy. He's not trying to wake God up. God's already awake. Oh, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. He's asking for evidence. Oh, Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know, oh, Lord, you are God and that you are bringing them back to yourself. You know why it's so important that your life and my life have evidence? Because there's a world that needs to see that America needs to come back. Alaska needs to come back. And the only thing they have to look at is the fire in you. The only thing they have to look at is the evidence in my life. Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull. The wood and the stones and the dust 
It even licked up the water in the trench, y'all. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. You know why? Because they had evidence. Because dedication always leads to habitation. Habitation always leaves evidence. If there's no evidence in my life, there's no habitation in my life. If there's no habitation in my life, it's because there's no dedication in my life. If we have a powerless church in America, it's because God isn't attending that church. I want a church that God shows up. And when he shows up, it's a showdown. And he's proven that he's the only deity of power in America. Then Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all. And Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them. You know, this wasn't hard to get the people of Israel to participate in. Because they'd just seen that the gods that demanded the lives of their firstborn children were nothing but a lie. And when they woke up, they got mad. Elijah didn't have to grab those people. The people of Israel grabbed those people, grabbed those priests, dragged them down to the valley, and Elijah just went down the line and and killed them all. Well, that was mean. You know what? I don't think you get to protest something as mean if you've been killing babies for your God. That's mean. You don't have to, like, stab me with stuff. You know what? If you're a demonic God that's asking for my children on your altars, you get whatever you deserve, man. The Lord have mercy on us. That was hard, huh? Now, this is so cool because after this, they take down the prophets of, they take down the prophets of Baal and they, they kill them all. But remember, it hasn't rained for three years. So how do you prove that Baal is not the God of fire? Baal can't send fire. So who's the God of fire? Yahweh is the God of fire. The God who answers with fire is the God of fire. How do you prove that Baal is not the God of the rain? Three years, buddy. It hadn't rained for three years. And now guess what's going to happen next? That's exactly right. It's going to rain. Then Elijah said to Ahab, go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. By the way, there was not a cloud in the sky, not a single cloud in the sky. And Elijah says, I hear a rainstorm coming. Why? Because he's prophesying that the Lord is about to send rain. He can send rain now. You know why? Because they just killed all of the prophets of Baal. There's not a single person doing a rain dance to Baal anymore because they killed them all. So now when God sends rain, the entire nation can go, that was God. Because Baal's dead. All of his prophets are dead. So this is so cool. Ahab went down to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of the mountain, bowed low to the ground, and prayed with his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, go out and look towards the sea. The servant went up and looked, then Elijah, uh, and then returned to Elijah and said, I didn't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to go and look. Finally, the seventh time, his servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising out of the sea. Why did it take seven times? Why seven times? Because that's how long it took. (laughs) 
He prayed seven times because on the seventh time, that's when the cloud came out of the sea. There's no magic here. You just pray until you see what the Lord told you you're going to see. You stick your head between your knees and you pray and you keep looking for evidence until what God told you is going to happen, happens. And you just keep going and sticking your head between your knees. If it takes seven times, seven is the biblical number of completion. So if it means anything, what it means is he did it till he was done doing it. He did it until the rain God showed up, the real rain God, Yahweh. Mm. Then Elijah shouted, hurry to Ahab and tell him, climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. Listen, this dude's got faith. There's a cloud that big on the horizon. And Elijah says, you better hurry back home to Jezreel or the rain's going to stop you. There ain't no rain, man. There's a cloud this big over on the horizon. But watch this. Soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Then the Lord gave special strength to Elijah, and he tucked his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab, ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. That's 25 miles. He outran a chariot for 25 miles. Uh, listen, he took, he took his little prophet skirt, and he stuck it up in his belt, And, you know, in the cartoon with their legs And he ran ahead of a chariot for 25 miles while sheets and curtains of rain came along behind him. Why? Because God just proved who the fire God was, and now God's proven who the rain God is because God is going to prove who the king of all the gods is, who the Lord of all the lords is, it's Jesus Christ, and it ain't Baal. That's what's happening right here. Ooh, it takes a lot of guts to stand up against a wayward culture and wicked leaders and demand evidence out of your faith. And, 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 and I think sometimes we, we, we say things to ourselves like, I don't want to put God to the test. You're not putting God to the test. You're putting Baal to the test. God's faithful. He's going to prove himself. This, the question is whether or not I'm willing. Are you ready to be more than a believer? Are you ready to be an altar of evidence? To let God prove himself through the evidence of our lives so that when the world stands up and says, Where are you, where's your God? You can say, let me tell you about it. This is what happened to me. Now, you may have seen evidence all around you and not even seen it. Um, this is, let me just say this first. If you were raised in a Christian home and you are a Christian kid, some of you can't even remember when you received Jesus. And I want to tell you something. You don't have to wait around to become a drug dealer and then repent in order to have awesome evidence of the presence of God in your life. My father-in-law is sitting right there. Stick your hand up, Carrie. This is my father-in-law. And he raised his, yeah, you should clap for that dude because he's put up with a lot of stuff. He's my father-in-law. <laughs> he and his wife raised their daughters to love and follow Jesus Christ. Those daughters married husbands who loved and followed Jesus Christ, and they have children who love and follow Jesus Christ. What greater evidence is there than the keeping power of the presence of God in a household where a nation is trying to tear down every household? If you're concerned you don't have 
a testimony because you were born in a Christian home, that's your testimony. That was Elijah's testimony. His whole life he followed God. That's his testimony. It's the best testimony of them all. But I can give you more testimonies. Before I was saved, I had surgery on my knee. It was my freshman year in, uh, in college. I had surgery on my knee, and they did a spinal in order to block the pain. When I woke up, uh, the pain got even worse. I had a spinal headache. Anybody ever have a spinal headache? So I had chronic migraines, which are terrible. They were so bad at one point that I considered taking a drill bit to my head to let some of the pressure out. I'd, I'd bang my head against the walls because my head hurt so bad. But after I had this knee surgery, I had a spinal headache, which is when the fluid leaks out of your spinal column and your brain rests on your spine and it gives you a really, really, really bad headache. And so every time I tried to open my eyes, I'd just see black and I'd puke and I couldn't get above vertical. So they took me in and they gave me a spinal patch, which is where they take some of your blood and they, they put it back into your spine to try to fill up uh, the fluid in your brain. So they told me it has a 90% success rate, this procedure. Went home, it all drained out, puked, wanted to die. Went back to the hospital. They did it a second time. They said, this is 100% effective. They did the procedure, went home, it all leaked out, puked, wanted to die. Went back the third time. They said, I've never heard of anybody having this done three times. Went home, it leaked out. I was just laying on the couch. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't get up. Didn't even care if I peed myself because I couldn't move. I was in so much pain. I just wanted to die. And my mom came over to me, and she said, I guess we can just go in and do it again. And I said, Mom, just leave me alone. I just want to die. And my mom went into the kitchen, and she got a bottle of vegetable oil, and she came back to the couch, and she put some on her finger, and she anointed my head. I wasn't even a believer. She anointed my head, and she prayed for me in the name of Jesus to be healed. I fell asleep. And when I woke up, I was completely healed. Listen, I was an unbeliever. And to me, science was power. But God just proved he was more powerful than the doctors. I can give you evidence in my life that God is powerful. And the doctors don't know how that happened. I've seen a bunch of things like that. But the greatest evidence in my life that God is a powerful, transforming God is that when I was a kid, I was an angry kid who was filled with the spirit of rage. I think I've told you guys about this before. I got bullied, and one day I just decided I'm not putting up with it anymore. I'm going to do anything I have to, and I'm never going to lose again. And at that time, something came into me. The first time I recognized that there was something wrong was we were having a brawl in the schoolyard, and there's this one kid named Arturo. Arturo was bigger than anybody else. He was twice my size. He was a big, broad, fat kid. And he was the leader of all the other kids because he was more powerful than everybody else. So we're fighting, and Arturo was my man. He was, he was over me, and I was under him. Sometime in, that, sometime in that fight, I had this red haze come over my eyes. It felt like I stepped out of my body like I was watching myself. And I grabbed Arturo by the crotch and by the neck and picked him up over my head and threw him at the other kids. And... I, <laughs> That's different. <laughs> From that time on in my life, I'm not saying, I'm not the, I was never the worst person there ever was. I was never the worst sinner there ever was. I was just a sinner. I was just me. 
But something happened inside of me, and I couldn't control my rage. I couldn't control my temper. And I was convinced that there was a spirit of rage inside of me even before I was saved. My greatest fear was that I was going to kill somebody that I cared about. Because over and over again, I would lose control and I would hurt people that I loved. So my greatest fear in my life was at some point I was going to lose control. I wasn't going to be able to stop. And when I came out of it, somebody that I loved more than myself was going to be dead. Even to this day, some people have nightmares about being naked at school. When I dream that I'm naked at school, I'm just like, eh. I got to get the calculus. What do you do? (laughs) Naked at school doesn't bother me. Naked public speaking in my dreams doesn't bother me. My worst dreams are dreams that I lose control, memories of my past that I lose control and that I hurt somebody that I love. Those are my worst nightmares. And they're reminders of me that that's not where I am anymore. Because when I met Jesus, he spoke to me with his own lips. I saw him with my own eyes, and something happened. He came when I submitted myself to him. He came and he inhabited the altar of my heart. And when he inhabited the altar of my heart, there was evidence. The evidence was the spirit was evicted. That thing, that rage was evicted. And a person who was out of control became a person of self-control. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit is a spirit of self-control. The greatest evidence of God in my life is my life. And the greatest evidence of God in your life is meant to be your life. The proof is in the pudding. That's why, that's why in Romans 12, 1, it says, Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed. Why? That's the evidence that the world is looking for. Show them the miracle of you. Are you willing to be the miracle that the world can look at? They overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Tell people the miracle of you. One of my friends is, um, is, a, is a higher up at uh, Integrity Music. And he was telling me about, they're, they're connected with D.C. Cook, which is a publisher. He was telling me about the new president of D.C. Cook, who's a great guy, strong believer. And this guy was in Africa, and he got to meet the ambassador from Uganda to the United Nations. And he asked the ambassador, what is the one thing that we can do differently that will change a nation? And the ambassador to the United Nations said, introduce the nation to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ will take a drunk man and make him a sober man and a productive member of society. Jesus Christ can take an abusive man and make him a gentle man, a good husband and a good father and a productive member of society. This is the proof. The bales of the United States of America, whatever it is, is it, your, is it money? Is it, I need, is it sex? I don't know what it is. That thing cannot turn you from a drunk man to a sober man. That thing cannot turn. It, it, 
can't bring you from a lonely person to a person who's full, to a person who from lacks self-control, to a person who has self-control. Only the spirit of the living God, Jesus Christ, can do those things. And that's what it's time that somebody stand up and tell the world, prove your God. Can your God take away your sin? Because my God can. That's the evidence of the living God. Now, um, I'm going to ask Joni and Kristen in just a second to come up and to share a testimony. And I'm going to tell you, I have no idea what's going to happen next, okay? But I believe today that God wants to do something in people's lives. I believe today that he's, he's, he's calling us out just like Elijah called out Baal. He's calling us out and saying, are you willing not just to be an altar of dedication, but to be an altar of evidence? Are you willing to say right here, God, prove to the world that you're God right here. Prove to the world that you're God right here. Prove to the world that you're God right here in my marriage. Do it right here with my relationship with my kids. Do it right here. Do it in my porn addiction. Do it in my alcohol addiction. Do it in my drug addiction. Do it in my bitterness. Do it in my pain. Prove to the world that you're God and that there's, a, there's one God, one powerful, one evident. Jesus. You guys want to come share? And this is what, as they're sharing, this is what I want to ask you. Begin to ask the Lord, am I willing to submit my life as an altar of evidence? Showing up to church is awesome, but that's not evidence that there's a living God. Being a new person is evidence. Being a new person is evidence. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this message, please connect with us at unitechurchak.org. We hope to see you soon.